euangelion, what we call the gospel, is a Greek word, and it signifies good, merry, glad, and joyful tidings that makes a person's heart glad and makes them sing, dance, and leap for joy. Those were the words of William Tyndale. He was the first person to translate the New Testament into the English language about 500 years ago before he was martyred by the Catholic Church. And he included that little explanation of his translation in a booklet that was published shortly after his English New Testament. And gospel is what we've seen so far in Luke, isn't it? Over the last few weeks, journeying through Luke has felt a bit like going to London's West End to see a musical. We had a a very short introduction in chapter 1, just four verses. And then all of a sudden, almost without warning, everyone bursts into song. First, Elizabeth, then Mary, then even the old man Zechariah starts to sing. Why? Because the angels have been announcing gospel, good news of a a saviour to be born, glad tidings of a rescuer who has come. News that has made their hearts glad and caused them to sing for joy. And at the heart of our passage this morning is yet another gospel announcement by the angels, this time to the shepherds. It's news so good that it causes a choir of heavenly angels to sing for joy. News so good it causes even hardy shepherds to glorify and praise God. News so good, I hope, it might just cause us to sing for joy. So good, maybe it might even get one or two of us dancing. You never know. Verses 10 and 11. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people today. In the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. We're going to dive straight in. And uh, this morning we've got four reasons why the birth of Jesus as our saviour is good news that causes great joy for all people. Here's the first reason. It's because it's historical, not mythical. Historical, not mythical. And it has to be that way, doesn't it? If the message of the Christmas angels is actually going to be life-transforming, joy-causing, gladness-inspiring, it does actually have to be true. And not just true in the sense that our society often understands that, mythically true, true for you, but not necessarily for me. No, it must be factually, historically true. If the Christmas announcement of Jesus' birth to a virgin girl in Bethlehem is nothing but a nice but made-up story, it is no better to us than going home and watching Love Actually. It might make us feel a bit better for a few hours, but it doesn't actually make any real difference to our lives. But if you remember back in chapter 1, we saw Luke doesn't settle for for sort of allowing us to get away with that, just saying, oh, it's just a, a mythically true account. No, no, no. 
He says his is a carefully investigated historical account based on eyewitness evidence. And we see that here at the beginning of chapter 2, don't we? Now, of course, Luke wants to communicate more than simply historical events that happened. He wants us to understand the deep significance of these events. That Jesus was born to be our saviour. But he roots that in the context of actual historical events. Jesus was actually born. So Luke tells us these things took place while Caesar Augustus ruled over the Roman Empire, which was 27 BC until 14 AD. He tells us it took place uh, during a census under Governor Quirinius. And Luke gives us those details because he wants us to have certainty regarding the truth about Jesus, that it's historical, not mythical. Now, let me just say very briefly here, I am aware of questions about Luke's chronology here, particularly with the dating of this census. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to get into that this morning. If you've got questions about that, please do come and find me afterwards. I'm really happy to, to chat through that or anything else. But what's really clear here is Luke hasn't made this up. If, if you and I make up a story, we leave out the historical detail, don't we? We steer clear of names and places and dates because people can check. And if you've made it up, they'll find out you've made it up. But Luke deliberately includes these details. He invites that kind of historical scrutiny because he wants us to have certainty about the things we've been told. Jesus' birth is good news of great joy because it's historical, not mythical. And secondly, because it's a story of humility, not hubris. Humility, not hubris. I think in many ways, uh, Luke chapter 2 is a tale of two kings. And at first, the spotlight is on the Emperor Octavian, the most powerful man in the ancient world, ruler of the mighty Roman Empire. His preferred title was the one Luke gives us, Caesar Augustus. It means the Supreme Lord. That's how Caesar liked to think of himself. He's the one with power glory and authority and his census is a way of exerting that power and authority at his command everyone goes where Caesar tells them at his instruction people are counted so he can know how massively great his empire is at his direction everyone is registered so they can pay their taxes to mighty Caesar Augustus it's an act of great hubris and pride, but there's a deep irony here, isn't there? Caesar is seeking to control his empire, but in the process, he proves that he isn't really in control at all. That he's not really the supreme lord that he likes to think he is. Because through this census, he unwittingly fulfills the plans and purposes of God. Working behind Caesar Augustus is God himself, the Lord, working to make sure that his son, the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, is born in Bethlehem. Just as God had promised centuries before through the prophet Micah. 
It's amazing, isn't it? God has so ordained things that when the time comes for the baby to be born, Mary and Joseph are living in Nazareth. And so in order to fulfill his promise and bring those two little people where they need to be in Bethlehem, God put it in the heart of Caesar Augustus that the whole Roman world should be enrolled, each in his own ancestral town. Think of it, all those powerful political forces, even without knowing it, are being guided by God, not for their own sake. But for the sake of these two people who need to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem, not just for a census, but so that God's son can be born where he promised. God wields a whole empire to bless his children. That ought to give us enormous confidence. So much of our Joy in life gets robbed by uncertainty. We, we want to control our lives, but we can't. We end up worrying about things that might happen, playing out different scenarios in our minds. But this is a, a truth that you can rest your head on at night in peace. God rules the world. And he rules the whole world for the good of his children. Not for our comfort, not for our ease, not for our prosperity or, our, or our, for our security, but for our good. In love, that we might become more like Jesus. And to that end, he rules the whole world for you, for me. But that actually makes the place of Jesus' birth even more surprising, doesn't it? If it's true that God rules the whole world to use an empire-wide census to bring Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, surely, surely he could have made sure that a guest room was available for them. Couldn't he have done that? Of course he could. And Jesus could have been born in a palace to a wealthy family. But the question is not about what God could do, but what God chose to do. Jesus Christ is the only person in human history who ever chose where to be born. If I'd have had that choice, I'd have chosen powerful parents, fabulous wealth, plush surroundings, an easy life. But Jesus deliberately chose Poverty, obscurity, humility. He chose an oppressed backwater village under Roman occupation. He chose a land in the shadow of death. He chose the manger. Who chooses to be born in an animal's feeding trough? Jesus does. One children's Bible puts it like this. While Caesar was getting ready to show the world how great he was by counting his people, God was getting ready to show how great he was by becoming one of the people. See, it's a total contrast to Caesar, isn't it? Jesus' birth is an act of the greatest humility. Humility that God became human. 
and that that human being was born in a manger that the lowliest birth imaginable. Just, just think about the difference between those two kings. See, one thinks he's the Lord, sitting in his palace, making decrees, throwing his weight around, ordering people here, there, and everywhere. He ruled over a biggish kingdom for 40 odd years. The other is the Lord. But he was born in a stable, tiny and helpless. And yet he rules over the whole world forever and ever in humility and love. I think it's possible for us, if you're familiar with this story, it's, it's possible for us to be so familiar with the manger that it barely even registers as a detail in the story anymore. But look again. See the amazing humility, the eternal God the Son, born as a human being, born in a manger for you. When Lydia was born, when she was a baby, we used to try to get her to sleep in her cot by playing songs by Adele. Uh, and one of the best songs to get Lydia to sleep when she was a baby was Adele's cover of Bob Dylan's To Make You Feel My Love. You know that song? Uh, she sings, I'd go hungry, I'd go black and blue, I'd go crawling down the avenue. There is nothing that I wouldn't do to make you feel my love. Well, this is what Jesus did. The all-sufficient one did become hungry. The mighty one became weak. The glorious one humbled himself to a crib and a cross for you. So that you would know his love. If you are ever tempted to think that God is remote or distant or detached from the realities of the brokenness of life in this world, from your suffering and trials, look again at the manger. Wonder at the God who became one of us. Let that amazing display of humility give you great joy in Jesus. It's humility, not hubris. Thirdly, you can rejoice because Jesus' birth means salvation, not condemnation. Salvation, not condemnation. In verse 8, the, the scene changes. The camera pans away from the stable to some fields, a, a mile or two maybe outside Bethlehem. It's a silent night. The shepherds are quietly minding their own business, warming themselves by the fire. And then out of nowhere... An angel appears, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. The angels stand there like a rabbit caught in the headlights. The brightness of God's presence beams at them. This bright light against the dark night sky. And the shepherds obviously are terrified. Literally, they feared a great fear. They have a megaphobia. 
it's always that way, isn't it, when the angels appear? I don't know if you've noticed that if you've, as you've read through the Bible. It doesn't matter whether you're a prophet like Daniel, a priest like Zechariah, highly favoured like Mary, or a hardy shepherd. Fear is always the first response when heaven confronts earth. Fear is always the first response when light confronts darkness. Because we know, don't we, deep down we're not the people we ought to be. And the bright light of God's glory exposes us, exposes the darkness of our sin and fear rises up. And yet the reaction of people is always the same, but so are the first words of the angels, aren't they? <laughs> always the same. Do not be afraid. Why? Because the angels aren't bringing news of condemnation, but salvation. The angels are not bringing news of a judge who came to point the finger, but a rescuer who came to save us. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. You might feel at this point in your life that you have lots of different needs at the moment. Maybe you need money to deal with the cost of living crisis. Maybe you feel like we need political stability to deal with the energy crisis and the financial crisis. Better health so you can steer clear of the NHS in crisis. Those are all very real needs for, for lots for the moment. But what God gives us is to meet our greatest need of all. See, if God had thought that our biggest need was financial, he would have sent us an economist. If God had thought that our biggest need was political, he would have sent us a statesman. If God had thought our biggest need was medical, he would have sent us a doctor. But God knows our deepest, greatest need concerns our sin, our alienation from God, our death. And so in his great love and mercy, he sent a saviour. Because what we deserve is condemnation. That's why the angels so joyfully announced the news of salvation. We've heard that, haven't we, as we've listened to the other songs. Zechariah last week, singing about how the Lord has provided a redeemer, a saviour to rescue us from our enemies. As we go through Luke's gospel, we're going to see Jesus doing that, saving people, performing mini rescues in all kinds of ways from all kinds of enemies. Jesus will heal people who are sick, give sight to the blind, feed those who are hungry, deliver people from oppression. Jesus restores people's lives. It proves that those other things, they do matter to Jesus. But Jesus said that the reason why he came, the capital R, rescue that he came to bring was through his death on the cross. Dying in our place instead of us to save us from sin and death and from the condemnation we deserve. 
Jesus died so that the guilt of your sin can be taken away and forgiven. Pardon for every wrong thing you've done or thought or said so that your relationship with God can be restored. So that you can experience peace. Peace that permeates all of life. That is your greatest need. And when you realize that, you begin to realize why Jesus is such good news. That brings such great joy. News that makes your heart glad, that makes you sing, and maybe even want to dance and leap for joy. Because Jesus' coming does not mean condemnation, but salvation. And lastly, it's joyful news because Jesus has come not for the lowly, for the lowly, not the lofty. For the lowly, not the lofty. It's amazing to think, isn't it? Of all the people that the angels could have appeared to that night, God chose the shepherds. I guess most of us probably would have planned it differently. We would have planned somewhere posh, somewhere plush, filled with powerful people and Instagram influencers. But God chose a bunch of smelly shepherds. They were the least likely people to receive an angelic visit. They were not spiritual people seeking God. They were just minding their own business. In their society, they were often despised and distrusted. They were seen as unworthy, unreliable, unclean. That's precisely the point, though. Jesus did not come to congratulate the self-important or to commend the self-righteous. Remember what Mary sang about her son, that he scatters the proud. He throws down rulers from their thrones. But he lifts up the lowly. What the angels say is absolutely true. Jesus' is coming is good news of great joy for all people. For all people. For absolutely anyone who will receive him. Even for you. But what we're going to see as we go through Luke is the kinds of people who receive Jesus like that who receive Jesus as good news of great joy, are not usually the rich or the good or the moral or the powerful. As we go through Luke, you see those people, they just don't think they need Jesus. Instead, the kind of people who respond are the poor and the lowly, and those who know that they're sinners, who freely admit how much they need a saviour. If Jesus is going to be good news of great joy to us, we need to become those people. Four reasons then why Jesus coming is good news of great joy. It's historical, not mythical. It's a story of humility, not hubris. It means salvation, not condemnation. It's because Jesus has come for the lowly. Not the lofty. 
But before we, we respond by singing, there's one more thing I want us to consider, which is the response of the shepherds to all of this. Because in this passage, the shepherds, they're kind of like model disciples. First of all, in response to God's word, they go and they see for themselves what's happened. It may be that you're here this morning and you're not certain yet what you make of Jesus. If that's you, this is where you need to start by carefully considering the claims about Jesus for yourself. But we see something of that in Mary as well, don't we? Pondering in her heart the things she's been told. It's a great thing to do this Christmas on those lazy afternoons after Christmas Day when you're stuffed full of leftover turkey, nothing to do except sit on the sofa, read through one of these accounts. You've got copies of Luke's Gospel over there, take it home. Read it over from someone, text someone from church what you're reading, ponder it in your heart. But then it's interesting, I think, what the shepherds do next. Verse 17, when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And then verse 20, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they'd heard and seen. Do you see what's happened? You see, the angels, they are long gone. They, they disappeared back into heaven, but their message has not disappeared. And neither has their song. It's been passed from heaven to earth, from the angels to the shepherds. See, before it was the angels praising God and saying, glory to God. But now it's the shepherds who are praising and glorifying God with joyful songs. Before it was the angels announcing good news. But now the shepherds are the ones entrusted with the gospel. The first evangelists, tasked with telling others the message about the Saviour. But I want you to notice, no one has to tell them. No one tells them to do this. They don't have an evangelism seminar at church. It just bursts out of them like Buck's fears on Christmas Day. Their joy overflows, it bubbles over in telling others. See, the shepherds know they're not the kind of people who deserve God's love. There aren't any such kinds of people. And yet the shepherds know God does love us so much that he sent his son to be our saviour. They grasped it. If we have grasped that, it will cause deep joy to rise up in our hearts. If you don't feel that this morning, joy sort of underneath everything else that's going on in life, if you don't feel that sense of joy rising up in your heart as we ponder the gospel together this morning, can I encourage you to do something about that? Pray with someone. For the spirit to bear his fruit of joy in your heart. Borrow a, a book to help you ponder the wonder of the gospel over Christmas. Get a Sovereign Grace music album, a Christmas music album to listen to on your travels around the country as you visit people. But please, do not settle for a joyless Christianity this Christmas. 
we're meant to feel a, a deep song of praise rising up in our hearts as we think about these things. We, we're meant to want to, to feel something in us, to, to join in with Mary and Zechariah, to emulate the angels, to simulate the shepherds in joyfully glorifying and praising God. And filled with that deep joy, and only when you are filled with that deep joy... Will we be those who start to tell others? Because otherwise we become like pushy salespeople who peddle a product that we don't really believe in or enjoy for ourselves. But like these shepherds, as we hear the gospel again this Christmas, pray it would come to you with freshness. As you listen to me this evening do a similar talk on the same passage, <laughs> pre-warning, pray that the Lord would help you to listen with freshness, that it would cause joy to rise up in your hearts, that God himself, out of his own fullness of joy, would fill you up, that we might begin to bubble over with the gospel to those around us.